0: One of the things that we need to understand when we're talking about Luther and the Pope, and indeed uh, the Reformation that Luther got started, was simply the fact that um, uh, Luther wasn't attempting to create a Lutheran Church. Uh, he was not, uh, you know, a, a violent schismatic or, or one of those uh, fellows like uh, uh, Joseph Smith, the Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, who believed that all uh, Christians prior to him were wrong. That he had new revelation from God, uh, and that he was therefore attempting to create uh, a church that had disappeared since the time of the Apostles, and perhaps was better than the, uh, the church of the Apostles. Uh, Joe Smith famously said that no man had, uh, including Jesus Christ, had done more uh, to save people, when in fact Joe Smith, if you follow his system of uh, doctrine, you will not be saved. But what Luther was doing was attempting to return the, uh, to reform the Roman Catholic Church and to bring it back to the teaching of the Bible, not to create a new church in any sense of the word. But in the meantime, uh, let's go ahead and, and get started on uh, reading that section. Today we're going to be reading chapter 21, uh, Luther and the Pope of Sketches from Church History. And I will go ahead and begin by praying. I hope you'll join me. God our gracious Father, we thank you Lord for raising up men in the past who had uh, fire in their bones when it came to the gospel, whether it was prophets in the Old Testament or men like Luther in the modern age, who although they were not inspired, loved the inspired word and desired to bring the church back To the fountain of all truth, that is your scripture. Uh, Lord, we know that he lived a hard life. Uh, He died um, relatively young by our terms, but having uh, been spent in the defense of the gospel, he was certainly not a perfect man. But we do thank you for Martin Luther. We thank you for his contribution to church history that we benefit from. And now, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand his struggles with the papacy. Uh, and help us to learn how we should live and struggle for the faith ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Chapter 21, Luther and the Pope. When David was persecuted by King Saul, he found a real friend in Jonathan, who was of great service to the troubled fugitive. In a similar way, Philip Melanchthon was Luther's Jonathan. During the days of struggle and persecution, he had become so fully convinced of the truths explained and proclaimed by Luther that their two souls were knit together in lifelong friendship. But Melanchthon was a very modest man. He had none of the boldness and daring of Luther. Nevertheless, he was a great help to the reformer, for he was a man of deep scholarship. At the age of 16, he published a Greek grammar, and five years later, he became a professor of Greek in the University of Wittenberg, the very place where Luther himself taught. He might have hesitated a long time before acknowledging himself to be a friend and admirer of Luther but God's providence pushed him to the front as a witness to the truth. The remarkable talents, vast knowledge, great learning and fine culture of Melanchthon led to him being called the teacher of Germany. Luther owed much to the calmness, gentleness and wise counsel of his colleague who did his best to keep the reformers' zeal and fervor within proper bounds. One of the things I I do need to uh, note about uh, Melanchthon before we go any further was that while Melanchthon was a great asset to Luther in many respects, um, he did not do... He, he, while he contributed much to the development of Lutheranism, his uh, great desire was to see a reunion with the Roman Catholic Church. So he did want to create a Lutheranism that was so far from Roman Catholicism that uh, uh, a reunification would be impossible. As a result, he was a huge moderating influence, not only during the time of Luther, but after it. Uh, Melanchthon uh, was a little too much on the, well, you know, if it's not, if it's not... Absolutely opposed to biblical doctrine let 's accept it, so therefore uh, he was he was far more of a moderate than Luther was he didn 't have the same kind of uh, absolutely fiery zeal, uh, and as a result, uh, the Lutheranism that was formed after Luther 's death, particularly uh, under Melanchthon, was not quite as reformed as Luther would have liked, certainly on when it comes to uh, what we as Calvinists would call the doctrines of grace, he blunted uh, so very many of them. Um, so, from a reform point of view, was Melanchthon helpful to the Reformation? Well, in one sense, yes, in holding back the, the raging zeal of Luther and, uh, and, and helping him, coming alongside him in this monumental task. But at the same time, uh, it produced uh, an incomplete uh, Reformation, um, largely because of his influence. But let's get back to Luther, shall we? Melanchthon's, well, let's get back to Melanchthon, actually. Melanchthon's birth name was Schwarzerd, meaning Black Earth his father being known as the Heidelberg Armour. When in his youth he became an outstanding scholar, Ruchlin himself, one of the greatest scholars of Germany, considered Schwarzer, far too homely a name for him, and persuaded him to adopt Melanchthon as its Greek equivalent, although in actual fact he usually wrote Melanthon. Normally he signed himself simply as Philippus. He rendered excellent service to the work of reform in Germany, being second to Luther himself. He lived until 1560, by which time he was weary of life and anxious to depart one other point that needs to be made uh here is uh you may uh, have seen um or noticed that most of the reformers had these weird latinized uh names they had us at the end uh, for instance uh so for instance uh the the armenian opponent of calvin uh calvinism uh jacobus arminius um his his name has these us, us, ends, endings. Uh, th- those were not the names that uh, their parents gave them. Uh, Jacobus Arminius is not a Dutch name. Jacob Harmon is. They, uh, they, what they did was they added uh, scholarly names to themselves uh, in order to, uh, and all the reformers did it uh, in order to uh, make them their their, uh, their their scholarly pen names. Uh, so there's quite a few names where they're they're not the original name; it's a Latinized name. Um, and, uh, Melanchthon is, uh, one of them. They, uh, uh, other names, uh, uh, you know, even, uh, normal names like Zwingli becomes Zwinglius and stuff like that. Um, it was, it was a scholarly affectation, uh, very common at the time amongst, uh, scholars, not just reformers. But, anyway, moving on. But we must return to Luther. The burning of the papal bull was an act from which there could be no retreat. The reformer had set his foot on the way from which he could not return. He was now on the road leading to victory or defeat. The various powers of Europe, emperor, kings, princelings, cardinals, monks, abbots and all, concentrated their attention on the conflict between the son of a German peasant and the man who wore the triple crown of the papacy. What would be the outcome? The greatest monarch of his time was the Emperor Charles V. He had been elected to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire in the year 1519 at the age of 19. He was the grandson of Isabella and Ferdinand, the rulers of Castile and Aragon respectively, and claimed much of the New World of America as well as extensive territories in Europe. As he was devoted son of the Roman Catholic Church, he was requested to deal with the case of Luther in a diet to be held in the city of Worms, and this he consented to do. He ordered Luther to appear before him. The reformer's friends warned him not to go, reminding him that the safe conduct given to John Huss just over a century earlier had not been honored. But Luther replied to them, If there are as many devils in, the wor- uh, devils in worms as tiles in housetops... Excuse me. I will still go there. The most famous hymn that Luther ever wrote, and he composed a number of hymns, is said uh, by some to have been written on the occasion of his entry into worms. But this is incorrect. Nevertheless, the lines are so typical of the man and so appropriate for the diet of worms that we give the first and last verses. This is, of course, uh, from um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God uh, here. Uh, S. M. Houghton gives us his his translation. As safe stronghold our God is still, a trusty shield and weapon. He'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now overtaken. The ancient prince of hell hath risen with purpose fell, strong mail of craft and power. He weareth in this hour. Our earth is not his fellow. God's word for all their craft and force one moment will not linger, but spite of hell shall have its course. Tis written by his finger, And though they take our life, goods honor, children wife, yet is their profit small, these things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. On the 16th April, 1521, Luther arrived at Worms. The streets were crowded with people, all waiting to see the strange man who, as many of the people thought, was the devil personified. Widows and even rooftops were filled with spectators, for the occasion was indeed historic. A single man had risen in revolt against the religious ideas of church and state, and all the forces of church and state were invoked to quell him. Henry VIII, the king of England, was himself engaged in writing a book against Luther. Indeed, all states in which Roman doctrine held sway looked with unconcealed wrath upon this German beast, or the German beast, who set Pope and church alike at defiance." So dense were the crowds that on April seventeenth, the day fixed for the first meeting of the diet, it was extremely difficult for the reformer and his supporters to reach the conference hall. Ultimately, they did so at the entrance stood a valiant knight, a famous army commander, who said to him, "My poor monk, my poor monk, you are on your way to such uh, to make such a stand as I and many of my knights have never done in our toughest battles. if you are sure of the justice of your cause." Then forward in the name of God, and be of good courage. God will not forsake you. When Luther entered the hall of assembly, he was astounded to see such pomp and brilliancy before him. The emperor occupied the principal seat, of course, but his brother was also present. Besides six electors of the empire, 24 dukes and eight margraves, all representing worldly power, and all of them allies of the church. In addition, there were 30 archbishops, bishops and abbots. Ambassadors, or sorry, seven ambassadors, papal nuncios, and the deputies of the free cities. In all, there were 206 persons of rank. The presiding officer, Johann von Eck, opened the proceedings by asking Luther whether he was the author of the writings displayed on the table before them. Secondly, he asked whether Luther was willing to retract the doctrines contained in the books of which the Church disapproved. In reply, the reformer being examined uh, in reply, the reformer, having examined the pile of books, acknowledged that he was indeed the author. But, as for the second question, he asked for time for reflection that he might not act imprudently but gave an answer without offending against the Word of God. The request was granted, and Dr. Eck and the Emperor's name adjourned the proceedings until the following day now. Please understand that what Luther was being asked to do was simply to repudiate the entire corpus of his writings, to say, yes, I am a heretic, and what I have written was wrong. Um, this would have uh, obviously defused the, uh, uh, the conflict uh, between uh, Luther and the Church, um, but it would have been a terrible blow, obviously, to the Reformation. Also, who's being asked to repudiate his entire work, uh, including books that contained many things, as he pointed out, that were scriptural and acknowledged by the uh, the papacy. Uh, it was one of those cases where they they hadn't really. Um no, very few, shall we say, members of the Roman Catholic hierarchy had actually read his material or dealt with it. They just saw him as a problem to be disposed of. Just repudiate your works. We'll get rid of them. We'll burn them. You won't write any new ones. You'll stop all of this. You'll go back to uh, your life in the monastery, uh, severely chastened, and everything will be over, and the political conflict will be uh, uh, will be gone. Um, and it's very possible that they were hoping that, uh, had that happened, of course, his political support would have evaporated amongst the Germans. Uh, he would no longer be the cause celeb, and, and very possibly he would have been tried again without the political uh, uh, supporters and, and put to death, like Huss was, but with uh, much less pomp and circumstance. was well, not all the case, always the case that you repudiated your views and yet got to live, um, as, unfortunately, Cranmer was uh, to find out later on. Uh, in any event we'll get to him uh, in a while but first back to Luther and the Diet Luther spent much of the night in prayer one of his friends gives us a specimen of his supplications O God, my God, be with me and protect me against my enemies of the world thou must do it, thou alone for in me is no strength it is thy cause, O God not mine, on thee I rely not on man, for that would be in vain O God, dost thou not hear do not hide thy face from me Thou hast called me, now be my stay. I ask it in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, my protector, my shield, and my defense. April 18th, 1521 was the greatest day in Luther's life. The occasion has been described as one of the sublimest scenes which earth ever witnessed, and most pregnant with blessing. Again, the streets were crowded with spectators. Again, the assembly hall was filled with notables. There was a delay of about two hours before he was brought before the emperor, and again Dr. Eck put to him the question, as to whether he would defend the books he had written, or withdraw them in whole or in part. Luther made his reply, the speech that shook the world, first in Latin, then in the German language, and it ended thus. Unless I am convinced by testimonies of the scriptures, or by clear arguments, that I am in error. For popes and councils have often er erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot withdraw. For I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted, My conscience is captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. These bold and uncompromising words caused a measure of pandemonium in the diet. Everyone was speaking simultaneously. Above the uproar, Dr. Eck tried to make himself heard as he warned the Reformer that general councils of the Church were a much safer guide to truth than the individual conscience. The emperor, for his part, showed little patience with Luther's doctrine. In person, rising from his seat in anger, he informed those about him that he had had enough of such talk, and thereupon he went out from the diet. On the following day, he told his courtiers that he could not see how a single monk could be right in the testimony of a thousand years of Christendom be wrong. Luther was escorted back to his lodgings, the emperor's safe conduct holding good on April 25th, He was allowed to leave worms. Certain Spaniards followed at his heels, railing and mocking and imitating the cries of wild beasts in pursuit of their prey. But the reformer left the city and set out on his journey back to Wittenberg. Before many days had passed, he was placed under the ban of the emperor. He was declared an outlaw. And thereafter, any who lodged him or gave him food and drink were liable to be charged with high treason against the emperor. So began... uh, Luther's career really as a reformer opposed, not just to the uh, church, but of course to the Holy Roman Empire and to the civil powers that were in league with the, uh, not the church, I should say, the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, the Vatican, and so on. Uh, That is, of course, one of the uh, uh, great questions, the one that the emperor dealt with. How can one individual monk uh, be right when the uh, the doctors of the church all said that he was wrong, and uh, not all the doctors of the church said he was wrong. Calvin and the other reformers uh, often appealed back to the early church fathers to church fathers like Augustine and so on to show that what they were teaching was not novel, uh, and ultimately, of course, they appealed back to the scriptures they appealed back to paul and they said this is this is Pauline theology that we 're teaching when we teach about the doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints, for instance, we're not making this stuff up. It's contained in the scriptures. The problem is the church has repudiated the scriptures. They have interposed their tradition. But in this case, here's the critical point. We're simply getting back to what happened at the time of the ministry of Christ. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, why do you and your disciples not follow the tradition of the fathers? Why do you not follow the rabbinic rules? For instance, they ate without first going through the ceremonial washing that the Pharisees prescribed, that rabbinic lore said that they had to do. They would, they would ritually wash their hands before they handled food. The reason that they did this was not because they knew about bacteria uh, or they were afraid of, you know, dirt getting on the food and getting into their mouths, what they were afraid of was that they had uh, accidentally touched something unclean, ceremonially unclean, that is. Maybe they brushed up against a Gentile and not realized it in the marketplace. Or maybe they had uh, accidentally uh, touched something that had touched a dead body and thus they had become ceremonially unclean and they believed that if they ate with unclean hands, then they would become ceremonially unclean and thus not worthy of going into worship themselves. So they had created this, uh, this passage of ceremonial washing. It was supposed to wash away their ceremonial uncleanness. So they did that before they ate. It's not, however, prescribed within Scripture, and it's a misunderstanding of sin. Sin is not something that's outside of us that we ingest. Rather, sin, as Jesus says, is in the hearts of men. It's a result of the uh, original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's a, it's the fall. It's our fallen nature that causes us to sin. It bubbles up out of the heart. It comes out of a man, not ingested into a man. So um, Jesus said to them that they taught the traditions of men instead of the word of God what is Luther doing? he's pointing out to the church now you're doing the same thing you have been for quite some time now you've piled man's tradition upon man's tradition upon man's tradition And there's no end of it until we get back to the word of God, until we get back to the grace of the gospel, until we turn away from all of these traditions that mislead, that have no basis in the word. You are piling tradition upon tradition, and in so doing, you have crushed and obscured the word of God. That essentially is what Luther was saying. And that is why Luther was right. And the church at the time, uh, represented by people by, like Eck and the Pope, were wrong. Uh, they, now, when I say the church, this was the covenant community. But in a little while, we're going to see at Trent, they anathematized the gospel. And so they become no longer a church, but as John put it in Revelation, a synagogue of Satan. And thus are to be repudiated. All right. Well, here endeth chapter 21. Thank you for listening in. Uh, to this section of Sketches from Church History. God willing, tomorrow we'll be uh, discussing Luther at the Wartburg, where he was taken for his safety and there worked on a German translation of the Bible.